Welcome to episode 44 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor, Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at the magazine. Now we're going to kick off with some poetry this week because the 2nd of July marks the 25th anniversary of the Ledbury Poetry Festival. Andrew Motion has described it as the best poetry festival in the country and since its inception it's welcomed over 3,000 poets from 150 countries. It's gathered household names like Caroline Duffy, Benjamin Zephaniah, Roger McGough and celebrities from Michael Palin and Joan Bakewell to Alexis Sale turn it into the largest and indeed most international poetry festival in the country. This year the festival is being launched by none other than Margaret Atwood, celebrated of course for The Handmaid's Tale, amongst many other novels, in conversation with the critic Stephanie C.K. The other person headlining this year's festival is Juliet Stevenson. Of course, Juliet Stevenson shot to fame in 1990 as the star of Truly Madly Deeply and has been revered and celebrated for her stage and screen performances ever since. She's had roles in films like Bend It Like Beckham and Being Julia, as well as numerous productions with the Royal Shakespeare Company and National Theatre. She's been nominated for three BAFTAs and five Olivier Awards, winning an Olivier Award for her role as Paulina in Death and the Maiden. But today she's here to talk to us about the great English poet Stevie Smith. Good morning, Juliet. Good morning. Good morning. We're very honoured to have you. Uh, now you've made a <laughs> film. You've made a film about Stevie Smith with Dead Poets Live to mark the 50th anniversary of her death in 1971, and you're going to be presenting this at the Ledbury Festival. So tell us all about the film and why. Stevie Smith. Um, yeah, we are. I'm, I'm so excited. First of all, I love Ledbury and I've been going for years to it since its early days, actually. And I used to take my kids when they were young, when you could throw kids in the back of the car without requiring their permission to do so. <laughs> and we'd, <laughs> we'd all go because it's kind of, it's like heaven, you know, it all takes place in this beautiful little market town in the height of summer and, you know, the sort of hayfields and cherries, blue, you know, it, it's, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's absolutely Gorgeous. Highly recommend for anybody who, who can get there. But um, it's been wonderful to see the festival grow. And I'm really, really chuffed that this year we're, we're um, kicking off with this film. Um, so I was asked to do this by the wonderful um, James Lever and Claire Ryhill, who basically, and Oliver, who, who, are, who are part of Dead Poets Society, which is a really great idea. And the idea is that you bring dead poets, poets who are no longer alive to read their own poetry, and you bring them onto stages, usually on this case, a film, because we made this during lockdown. Yes, we did. But the idea is that, and, and I really, really sort of ardently believe this, that poetry can't just be read inside your head. I mean, of course you can sit and read a poem on a page. Of course you can. But to, to, to get a poem out and, you know, into the, into the body, into the mouth and, to, and out loud is a whole different experience. I mean, I think this is true of Shakespeare. It's true of all sorts of writing, that language in its very shape and sound lends more meaning than if you're just reading it sort of mentally, intellectually inside your head. So... Um, that's the sort of idea. And then very often what they do, they'll take a poet and they'll also talk a lot about the poet's life in conjunction with their poems. So you go from biography to a poem, back to biography. And, 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 and so you, it brings you to a greater understanding about why poets are writing, you know, at any particular time about a subject and, and what was perhaps going on in their lives that might reveal more about that poem. And I, my, my, my big thing about poetry is you know, is that a lot of people are put off poetry because they think it's a bit sort of, you know, I don't know, for the highly educated or they don't understand it or they're a bit intimidated by it or they didn't like it at school or, you know, and, and actually, of course, I feel passionately that it really is for everybody. And it's like, for me, it's like a sort of vodka shot, you know, you just quickly read a poem and it, it has a big impact on you and it only takes five minutes. So, 
Oh, sorry, it's my dog. Um, anyway, <laughs> the dog, the dog, the dog agrees with you. Too. The dog, the dog agrees. The dog, the dog's a big, uh, the dog's a big um, fan of Stevie Smith. But to bring us on to Stevie, I, I wasn't sure what I felt about Stevie Smith. I mean, obviously, we all know the famous poems, and I have always been sort of amused and intrigued by her. But I suppose, like, like most people, like many people, I had her in a bit of a sort of box as being, yeah, she wrote some good stuff, but she was pretty eccentric, and she isn't a great poet, whatever that means and you know and perhaps not universally appealing and so on and then when James and Claire presented this um, project with this amazing script about her that they'd written and we sat down to look at lots and lots of her work and against uh, what was going on in her life it was really revelatory and, and, and as a result of making this film I now think that she as I understand much much more about her and she she's got out of her box as far as I'm concerned you know she she doesn't she doesn't really fit in any category she's extraordinary uh, much much greater poet than I realized but I'm hoping that when people see the film I hope that people will feel very very differently about her and have a much much better sense of what a great poet she is well, now you film this on stage at the San Wanamaker Playhouse by candlelight haven't you which um we did so, yeah yeah so 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 was that because there is this uh you know I, I mean for however funny she is she is actually quite a dark and sort of lonely figure isn't she I think to be <laughs> I think to be perfectly honest the setting was because they had a budget <laughs> the, globe, <laughs> the globe had a budget to do stuff like this and <laughs> I think they just gave us the money to do it um the, the San Wanamaker is a, is a gorgeous space, isn't it? Because it, mm. is, it is theatrical. And there is something quite theatrical about her. I mean, when you hear her read her own poems, they're very theatrically read. She doesn't read sort of subtly or minimally or, you know, she doesn't sort of mutter along. She really declaims them. And sometimes that's a bit putting off. Other times you think, oh, this is great. You know, she was really... Um, but there is something a little theatrical about it. But also it's a very intimate space, which is sort of more appropriate for poetry. Yes, yeah, so so the format is that James and I sit on stage and we sort of chat. I mean, I, I decided to try and inhabit her. I didn't want to just come on as me and sit down and sort of, I'm going to read a poem and now I'm going to read another poem. You know, I really kind of wanted to kind of get inside her skin and try and be her. Because when you watch her, and I watched everything I could find on YouTube and, you know, videos of her talking and being and hanging out in pubs with W.H. Jordan. I mean, she's such a character and so extraordinary. And I thought um, the poems will work much better if I have a sense of abandoning myself and just trying to inhabit her rhythms, her mannerisms, her attitudes. And that will give me much more leeway to read the poems as I think they need to be read. Because if I, as Juliet, just tried to read them like her, it would sound ridiculous. But as her, you can sort of get away with it. Yeah, that's, br that's brilliant. And so the film is going to be shown on 11, on the 11th of July at 7 o'clock. Presumably one logs on to um, the Lebri Poetry Festival online yep. as well as yep. presumably people can be there in person. There's going to be a Q&A afterwards. Um, yeah, James yeah. Lever. And, and you? Yeah. Well, if I, yes, I mean, hope, yes, me, hopefully. I actually have got just a filming job uh, abroad, but I'm really, really oh, hoping good. I can still do this. I get quite sort of missionary about these poets. I just think there are lots of women poets like Emily Dickinson and Stevie Smith who've been sort of, they've been put into a into a category by history and they so need letting out of the bag and I just mm. long for people to have a sense she's so funny she's so dark she's she's dark about small domestic issues like suburbia and she's very funny about <laughs> dark issues like death I mean she turns absolutely everything on its head so I, I'm really longing for people to sort of um, you know uh, um, get, get sort of released into understanding much more about her so yeah I'm looking forward to it.
Brilliant. And I don't want to obviously now lower the tone, but given given the earlier bark, I noticed that there is actually a poetry reading for dogs at the Lippery Poetry <laughs> Festival. <laughs> with is Matt that? But, uh, no, is it? Yes. I, saw, I think that's one for you, Ed. You love your dog. We've had Ali Aziri on the podcast talking about poetry. We've had oh, yeah. William Seacart talking about the poetry pharmacy. Oh, yeah, that's great. A, I love I'm on a board. Pharmacy. I'm on a board with William, and he opens every board meeting with a poem. Does he? Yeah. What but, a great thing to do. Isn't that great? And also, um, wouldn't it be amazing if big corporations opened their board meetings with a beautiful poem? Probably God, changed know, the world. Honestly, Ed, it would be. Do you know what? I get this, um, funnily enough, it's so, it's so strange we should be having this chat this morning because I get this lovely thing. You can sign up to this American Poets website and every day you get sent a poem. So I wake up in the morning, turn the phone on, and the first thing in my email is a poem. And then almost invariably ones I've never read before and often poets I've never heard of before. So every day you get this little shot first thing in the morning and I, I, and I love that. And this morning it was all about wouldn't life be better if we were all dogs? So there you go. But it's so interesting with, with poetry, isn't it? It's really having its moment. I mean, uh, Ralph, Fiends, you know, he's obviously at the moment touring the country with four quartets. Apparently, he absolutely insisted on taking it out into the country and not just keeping it in London to prove that there was a really big appetite for poetry everywhere. And it's going down an absolute storm. Packed out houses. I mean, Michael Sheen and Under Milk Wood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, I, 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 I've been on a, I'm sort of on a, on a mission about this. I, I really, really think it's so overdue for being debunked. But I listen, I think there's loads that's already been done. I mean, there's just amazing, amazing stuff coming from you know, young people. You know, the whole sort of spoken word rap, you know, has already done a lot to, towards that. And I think that, you know, how would you, you know, rap, poetry, spoken word, it's, it's, it's all in, in the same territory it's just taking different forms i think it is all you know becoming much more democratized and and, and now which is really exciting because you know nobody has much time to read 19th century novels a thousand pages long sadly but we do nobody doesn't have time to read a poem yeah and, and for me as i say it's like a little shot of you know rum or vodka or something you just you know knock it back and in three minutes you probably feel a bit better about the world Who's the next woman really? poet that you have your eye on? Oh, what a great question. Well, I think, I mean, Emily Dickinson is, yes. is I, mean, there's, I mean, everybody knows about Emily Dickinson and there's loads of really, really brilliant, you know, there's some very, very interesting biographies that have been written about her, but she really needs letting out of her box as well. People tend to think, oh, these poor women who were shy and retiring and locked themselves away in their homes and couldn't fake, couldn't deal with society and were probably agoraphobic and hysterical, a bit like Stevie Smith. And actually, you think, no, I don't think so. I think they were women who really didn't want to get married and get tied to domestic chores and didn't want to sort of meet society's tedious norms of what they were allowed and expected to do. So Jane Austen. <laughs> Jane Austen. Jane yeah. Austen. And actually, if you read about these women, they were all pretty ferociously clear yeah. about what they would and wouldn't do. <laughs> exactly. They won't do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to talk to that person. I'm not going to go to that party, that event. I won't go to church. No, thank you. And what they were doing, I think, is actually, far, far from being shy and retiring, they were just saying, I am clearing the space to write. Leave me alone. Well, I hope James Lever is listening to this and that um, at the... Poetry Festival, he will suggest to you that you do Emily Dickinson. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're yeah. going to make him. We're going to make James do this. That's the point. We need to, we need to double our audience. 
<laughs> if you watch the film, I mean, James James is really, really brilliant. He's an extraordinary way of telling you incredibly complicated, interesting thoughts and ideas in a really, really accessible way. He's completely wonderful at doing that. He's he's really gifted um, communicator. So he's he's in the film. He's he does a brilliant, brilliant job. Well, thank, thank you so, so much. We are it's an absolute pleasure. Yeah. On. Thank well, we you, Ed. It's, it's lovely. Thank you for having me. On the 2nd of July, the Cheltenham Music Festival, which was established in 1945, is returning with 10 days of fantastic classical music at venues all around Cheltenham and across the Cotswolds. What's really exciting about this festival is that alongside its symphony orchestras, star solos and world-class ensembles, it's known for championing new music and giving composers and young talent their first major platforms on which to perform. Now, kicking things off on the 2nd of July will be the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra performing the first orchestral concert in Cheltenham Town Hall since before the pandemic. And here to tell us all about it is the Music Festival's Head of Programming, Camilla King. Good morning, Camilla. Morning. Good morning, Camilla. Now, you've said how excited you are that Cheltenham is at last going to get some live music, and I expect you're really looking forward to raising the roof. It sounds like a fantastic lineup. So tell our listeners what the really big highlights are going to be over the 10 days. Well, as Ed already mentioned, we'll be having the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra with their chief conductor, Kirill Karabitz, for a gorgeous programme with some Tchaikovsky and Mozart, and it's just going to be a really lovely celebratory opening. Uh, we also have the BBC National Orchestra of Wales coming with much-loved local conductor Martin Brabins for an evening of lovely English music. Um, again, it's all about the celebration in Cheltenham this summer. Uh, and then we also have opera and our classical mixtape programme coming to Gloucester Cathedral for the first time, which is going to be a very magical evening. And we've got the 12 Ensemble closing the festival for us. They are one of my favourite groups. I think they're extraordinarily talented young musicians and I've been trying to get them to Cheltenham for ages. So it's a real coup that we've got them coming on our last day on the 9th of July this year. We've got films celebrating uh, the composer Malcolm Arnold. Uh, we've got a musical ramble in Heinem in Gloucestershire, uh, which will be taking a look at the place where Hubert Parry grew up. And we've also well, got... And it involves ramp Does it involve rambling? It does involve rambling. I did I, <laughs> I did the ramble. Well, I, like I did... This. Yeah, I did the ramble last week um, with some colleagues and our dogs uh, to check that the route works and that it is nice scenery. Um, and it's it's going to be really, really beautiful. So how does that work? Do, do, do the musicians ramble as well or do you ramble past the musicians? <laughs> so we've got a fantastic chap called George Paris who is going to be leading the walk and uh, telling the walkers about Hubert Parry and about his life and stopping and he will have a device on which he will play extracts of Parry's most famous and much-loved works which include things like I Was Glad, Jerusalem, all those you know tunes that we all know so well. Oh. That's just brilliant. Yeah, and you'll be stood in the place where he would have been as a child and as a young man and, you know, get really get that sense of what inspired him to write those pieces. The 12 world premieres are part of a special day which is called Composium and it's kind of like a conference day with talks and panel sessions and world premieres and it's open to the public as well as members of the industry and it's meant to be a kind of place where really honest conversation can take place about contemporary classical music and what it is to 
to be a creative. And you've got Chineke, my favourite orchestra, performing. It's not the whole orchestra, unfortunately. That would be incredible. But we've got four of their key players coming to form a chamber group who will be playing some of these pieces written by our Composer Academy students. Excellent. I like the sound of the classical mixtape event because I gather at oh, Gothic you're such an cathedral. 80s no, I, I like the way... <laughs> you, love a, I, you love a good mixtape. <laughs> I, I love a good mixtape, yeah. And I love the idea that apparently you're allowed to lie down if you want, so it tells us what's happening in the <laughs> Cathedral. Oh, that, could, that could transform... <laughs> classical music engagement if you're allowed to actually lie down when you're listening. I, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the idea is we really wanted to break down some of those conceptions that people have about classical music and it being, you know, perhaps a bit stuffy or not very welcoming or too long or whatever, you know, all those things that we often hear levelled at classical music. We really wanted to show people that it doesn't have to be like that. And so what we do is we'll go into Gloucester Cathedral, we'll take out most of the chairs from the nave. Um, there will be some seats but we will bring in gorgeous rugs and we build three stages down the nave of the cathedral. This year we will be asking people to stay in one spot but they will be able to grab a rug and if they want to they can lie down. We encourage people to use their phones if they want to and in the um, kind of sense of it being a mixtape every piece of music is about four minutes or less. Um, So the idea is that there's Yeah, so there's a kind of, there's a really nice change of pace happening and the music flows through these different stages. So um, wherever you're sitting um, or lying, you'll be able to see and hear things and it sort of, it kind of flows around the building in a really atmospheric and kind of magical way. I have to say it's probably my favourite thing in the festival Um, and tickets start at £3 and it's a kind of pay what you want situation. If you weren't sure and you wanted to dip your toe, it's it's the perfect thing to come along to and just, you know, just kind of soak it up. It's really great, really great. Now, talking about informality, you're also teaming up with the Cheltenham Jazz Festival for some of your free stage concerts. So you've got music from all over the world, from Bristol, as far away as Bristol. (laughs) (laughs) London, Spain, Cuba, Morocco. Give us a flavour of how that's going to work. (laughs) Um, So we've got this free stage in Imperial Gardens in Cheltenham. There are family shows specifically for younger children in the mornings and there's entertainment going on during the day like face painting and circus performers. There will be drinks, bars and food stalls and really the only remit when we were putting it together, myself and, and my colleagues at the Jazz Festival, was to say almost anything goes as long as it kind of, the act gives us goosebumps and is something that you hear it and you think, I really want to see them play live. So we have got a small amount of classical music on there, but we've also got jazz, blues, soul, Americana, country, folk. We've even got a sea shanty group coming um, from Bristol, as you mentioned. Uh, we've got an incredible oud are they player. The, sorry, are they the ones who sang to uh, the summit in Cornwall? Because they had sea shanties at the summit, didn't they? They did. They, they're very, it's very <laughs> hot. It's very hot right now, sea shanties. I have a real soft spot for sea shanties and that kind of male voice singing, which I think is very powerful and visceral and kind of speaks to the history of our country. And, um, and that sort of the way that music actually infuses all our lives and is something very at the heart of who we are as a nation. And so I think there's a reason why sea shanties are sort of coming back into fashion, if you like. I don't think they are the group who performed at the summit, but uh, equally as good 
Absolutely no doubt of that. <laughs> oh, it just sounds wonderful. And it's, do you know, it's July the 11th is my birthday, so I might just have ah. to come and lie, lie down in Colostra Cathedral. You'll, you'll have, yes, you'll have, to, you'll have to come, either come and lie down in the cathedral or come and lie down in Imperial Gardens and <laughs> just kind of soak it all up. There's lots going on in it. And it's be hopefully a lot of fun and a bit of a party atmosphere. Thank you very, very much for coming on. Thank you. It's a pleasure. That's Thank fantastic. you. Thanks, Charlotte. I'm now, I'm now distracted by trying to work out how Charlotte, old Charlotte's going to be. <laughs> a gentleman never guesses a lady's age that's what they say isn't it he, he, that he's not he's always talking about my age on air it's really... <laughs> right let's draw a veil there Brilliant. shall we yeah, yeah. alright dear great thank you so much Camilla Take thank care. you it's a pleasure if I were to stay Lobsteropolis City within the metaverse of Decentraland you'd be partly right in thinking I was entering some surreal zone and was slightly losing my marbles. Well, I admit it was hard at first, though harder for Charlotte to get my <laughs> head around. But Lobsteropolis City is, in fact, the name of the first fully digital exhibition by the British contemporary artist Philip Holbert. It's an open-source virtual reality world on the Ethereum blockchain. Still with me? And you can explore the 57 land parcels in lobster land through a unique avatar the digital exhibition has been curated by the globally renowned art auctioneer simon de Puri and includes nft works you know what they are don't you including philip colbert's iconic works crypto fiction and lobster fountain alongside new unseen works now lobster land opens on the 30th of june with decentraland's first auction at the Lobster Land Museum, hosted, of course, by Simon de Puri. He's going to be auctioning a brand new NFT artwork created with legendary American new wave band Devo. And it certainly sounds like a lot of fun. Here to tell us far more about it than I ever could is the artist behind it all, Philip Kolberg. Good morning, Philip. Good morning, guys. It was, I'm very impressed by your extremely articulate uh, description <laughs> of my bonkers um, <laughs> pastime. Listen, Philip, it's second nature to us. We're, we're digital <laughs> natives, Charlotte. Uh, I can tell. World. I know you're legal. The There's no mispronunciation there. You're, you're sharp. Let's start with your collaboration with Devo. So tell us about the artwork that you've actually created together. So for me, Devo were one of the, the iconic sort of art bands when I was growing up. They, they, they were a very popular band in America in the, like, the late 70s, 80s very much part of this new wave movement and for me the, there was a, an amazing irony with Devo they had these like bo yellow boiler suits and red energy dome very iconic hats they would wear so they were like a almost something similar to what we might think of like craft work with the sort of idea of this 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 realm of being able to create a band that's also like an art piece so for me Devo were this had this art band quality they were heavily ironic you know quite into you know wittily you know, cynical and, and creative and, and, and questioning of things. And so, and actually, funnily enough, Devo very much were also the, the real pioneers of the music video. So for me, they were very important conceptually in this hybrid of, of art and music. I felt somehow my, my lobster persona, in a, in a way, has this similar sort of ironic commentary on consumption and productification and art and, and, and persona. And in a way, Devo were doing something similar with the boiler suits and the, the parody of the, their, 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 um, their image as a band. But you're not trying to pretend that you grew up in the 70s. You look about 21. <laughs> no, so I'm, I'm actually cruising to middle age extremely fast. What is your date of birth? Um, oh, 1979. So I'm actually 70, I'm a 70s kid. 
Jesus, Just. I want what you're on. I had a friend. Uh, I had a friend who made a film about a lobster or a giant prawn. But anyway, I digress. But there's definitely a lobster theme in art. No, I want to talk about. Lo- I, no, I, I want to talk about lobsters. Capitalism. Go on, talk about lobsters. I really do want to ask you this very obvious question: What the hell is it about lobsters? It's true they, they've attracted artists over the generations, and I think that's. That's what's that's I guess what drew me to the lobster ultimately was I've always been very into symbols because for me you know art, you know art is very much about communication and and visually speaking graphic powerful symbols are important let's say keyholes to meaning so for me the lobster was like this symbol of a protagonist of surrealism the first starting point I would say would would be in the Dutch still life painting genre the lobster was like a key figure like almost this um, protagonist in the middle of the painting so in in my mind the lobster then almost entered art history very iconically so then fast forward to obviously the surrealist period where artists such as Salvador Dali then became you know hugely enamored by the lobster I mean it's hard to see a picture of Dali where where he's not with the lobster. Dali was the lobster telephone wasn't he? Who did the lobster telephone? He he did the lobster telephone yeah exactly. Has anyone, has anyone commissioned you to make a documentary about lobsters in art? Um, no, good idea. Actually, no. I think no, this is I mean, going to happen. <laughs> well, podcasts are the new documentaries, guys. Um, so basically, we can do an eight-part series on lobsters in art <laughs> as a podcast. Yeah, I know that's well. You'll be very happy to know that in my lobster world, Lobsteropolis digital world, I'm creating the Lobster University. So my 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 crazy ambition is to um, is to create the biggest sort of um, cultural. Um, academia for lobsters in the world. What do you need to get in? <laughs> yes. What kind of you guys qualifications? <laughs> you need three A's, Claw A claws. Exactly. <laughs> um, claws of the contract. Let's try a pincer movement. Now, obviously, I'm very interested in all this because, you know, I was the video games minister and you've got companies like Improbable creating their metaverse and you've got Occupy White Walls with its virtual galleries. And uh, I call kind of digital art the kind of, I have this terrible cliche phrase, Mozart with a synthesizer, which is, you know, the artist will use whatever medium is available. I mean, I do kind of slightly, because I am so old, raise my eyebrows at NFTs and think, are they just a bit of a slightly sort of Ponzi scheme? But I don't raise my eyebrows at digital art. I think it's perfectly legitimate for artists to create digital art because digital is is a new medium. But where do you think we are going with all of this? For me, the obvious thing, digital art, obviously, is probably the most relevant form of art today, because if you think about, you know, the influence of phones on our brains, on the way we consume, the way we express ourselves, the, 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 the hyper consumption of, of information through digital technology, you know, and also just the possibilities of creation through digital technology with all these rendering softwares and, the, the, you know, and the democratization of of, of this digital technology to express and create imagery. I mean, just the NFT rise is a great example of seeing the depth and breadth of digital abstract creation that's occurred. The interesting point for me is that, so n- number one, digital art is obviously defining art of our time, um, full stop. The question of NFTs is interesting because prior to the NFT, you know, sort of tidal wave, th- th- there hadn't really been a legitimate collectible platform for digital art or there hadn't really been, a, let's say, an articulation on the, on the democratic value of digital art. Like, people, people collect paintings, commodity sculptures, editions, things. There was, there was a very much a, 
an emphasis on the physicality of things. And I think the NFT was interesting as a, as a movement because it, it put again the focus onto the idea and also it put a focus onto, onto the idea of being able to own digital art and collect it and have platforms to show it. And, and, it, and it very much has given birth to this huge market of digital art. I think the NFT has helped to articulate and help to democratize and bring to land in a way an important art movement. I think that's right. I mean, I think things will work themselves out as it were, a bit like Bitcoin. You know, there'll be initial flurry of speculation and hype and things will kind of settle down into, as you say, NFTs acting as an onboarding for uh, the collecting of digital art. So I think it's going to be very, very interesting to see what people are buying in 10 years time and what artists are creating but it's obviously impossible to predict yeah and i think but my my feeling with it is it'll just be it'll be like a, a pie you know the art pie and there'll be a certain probably a percentage of people buying you know you know very blue chip big name stuff from the past and there'll be a slice of people buying digital art and there'll be a slice of people you know i think realistically there will all these different art because art is a discussion there's no there's no um, authority on what art is. Tell us, so if we want to go to the opening on the 30th of Lobsteropolis, how do we, and see the auction and so on, what what do we do? How do we get on there? Okay, so you basically people um, can log into the um, Decentraland platform, which currently is through laptops or desktop computers, and they then are able to, without paying anything, just create an avatar persona and then access for free the world. And um, and then my world, um, Lobster, uh, Lobsteropolis City, is basically located in the Vegas City District, which is the largest like land holding in Decentraland. I didn't just want to make a a little gallery; I wanted to make an actual whole world. And you know, so in, in addition to the museum, um, where Simon de Puri is curating, I've also obviously got this like um, Lobsterland record label, and where I have the Devo performance. And then I also have, as I was mentioning, a museum being built. And there's also a casino for where people can 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 play with, uh, you know, f- sort of fake lobster coins, or you know, free lobster coins to, to, you know, for fun. And then there's also a supermarket. And there's, there's so I'm creating all these like the, these ideas of ways of interacting with a, a phenomenon of an art world. Because for me, what's really interesting about what I'm trying to do on the 30th is it's a bit of an experiment because it's it's a virtual art exhibition within a virtual art world. So. The, the, every element within my my world is entirely like as if it were a painting. It's every element of it is has, is created almost like a sculpture. But the thing you can actually buy with your with your NFT thing is is the is the um, Devo thing that Simon's auctioning. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. So it's my collaboration with Devo um, will be uh, available to bid on at the um, at the at the opening, and then after that we will do subsequent drops with this platform super rare you know i i like the idea of of the museum being a genuinely you know like a, a, a like an art like an art museum of my world but so in addition to nfts it's also got lots of like um antiquities from my fantasy lobster ancient history because I'm, I'm i'm really interested in sort of antiquities and and the the, the the idea of living in the ruins of the past and the fact that that is such the ruins of the past and the ideas of the past almost philosophically have such an influence on us today. You know, in my lobsterland world, I've got lots of references to these sort of lobster antiquities, which is a sort of spoof in a way of, of of our own antiquity, but but also a way of just layering my own 
world with its own past and, and then also fantasizing its own future. Oh, how interesting. Well, I can't wait to go on it. I'm exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> My brain hurts. <laughs> go and have a lobster and chips for breakfast. <laughs> yeah. yeah, don't eat lobster, guys. That's the thing. I, I um, You've got to protect the lobsters. They're highly intelligent lobsters. Did you know that? Of course. No, I thought squids, <laughs> uh, octopuses are the new uh, superlative beings, aren't they, after that film? Octopi. Octopi, yes, sorry. I stand corrected by a classicist. Sorry, Ed. <laughs> Octopi. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Phil, for coming on and telling us all about it. And good luck with it on the 30th. Of course. Thank you so much, guys, for having me on. Before we go, I just wanted to say that last weekend I went to Yorkshire to see the Hepworth exhibition at the Hepworth Wakefield Gallery and it was one of the best exhibitions I've ever seen. I can't recommend it more. Superbly laid out, the gallery itself, which is phenomenal and full of light, does every justice to Barbara Hepworth's monumental sculptures. This is also the biggest gathering of Hepworth's work there's ever been, so it's well worth a visit. I also went to the Yorkshire Sculpture Park on Sunday, which I know is one of your favourites, Ed. Certainly is. Yeah, and I absolutely loved it. And on a summer's day, it really is a glorious place to be and quite surreal to be in all that open countryside, but looking at some massive Damien Hirst or a Nicky de San Falo and Anthony Caro. Actually, there's some beautiful Hepworths there as well. So if anyone's going north for their staycation this summer, make sure to stop at Wakefield. You were presumably staying at Castle Howard, Charlotte. Oh, I, not quite. I was staying at the Three Acres Inn. Oh, Castle Howard <laughs> yeah, is such a lovely place to stay, I've got to say. But anyway. I'm getting um, FOMO now. <laughs> yeah, it's great shooting as well. Anyway, talking of staycations, on the 9th of July, well, actually, I'm not going to talk about staycations first. I'm going to, since Charlotte's sort of thrown down the gauntlet, well, I'll have you know, I went to the V&A twice. I've seen the Iran exhibition. I've and seen that, I've yes. seen the Alice in Wonderland exhibition, which is fabulous. I went to the opening of the Alice in Wonderland exhibition, I'll have you know. I've been to see the amazing exhibition at Tate. I've been to, what else have I been to? Oh, I went to a terrible exhibition at the National Gallery, but it's always glorious to be in the National Gallery because you see those extraordinary paintings just hanging up there in your sitting room. Anyway, talking of staycations, on the 9th of July, Country and Townhouse is into this brand new travel newsletter. The first 100 people to sign up receive a free copy of this year's gorgeous Great British and Irish Hotels Guide. With everything in it, you need to plan your holiday or just drool over a fabulous hotel to go and spend the weekend in. So be sure to sign up for that. You know our website by now. It's countryandtownhouse.co.uk and you just add forward slash travel hyphen newsletter to the end of it to subscribe. And do keep subscribing to this podcast and listening because it gets us up the rankings and gets us more listeners. And we'll be back next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.